This is Deb Donig with Technically Human, a podcast about ethics and technology, where I ask what it means to be human in the age of tech. Each week, I interview industry leaders, thinkers, writers, and technologists, and I ask them about how they understand the relationship between humans and the technologies we create. We discuss how we can build a better vision for technology, one that represents the best of our human values. Today, I am speaking with Carl Zimmer. Carl Zimmer reports from the frontiers of biology, where scientists are expanding our understanding of life. Zimmer is a popular speaker at universities, medical schools, museums, and festivals. In 2009, Zimmer began teaching workshops and seminars at Yale, and in 2017, he was appointed professor adjunct in the Department of Molecular Biophysics and Biochemistry. He is the creator of the podcast, What is Life? And he is also a frequent on radio programs such as Radio Lab and This American Life. He is the author of 13 books about science. His newest book is She Has Her Mother's Laugh, The Power, Perversions, and Potential of Heredity. His column Matter appears each week in the New York Times. Zimmer's writing has earned a number of awards, including the Stephen Jay Gould Prize, awarded by the Society for the Study of Evolution. She Has Her Mother's Laugh won the 2019 National Academy's Communication Award and was named Notable Book of the Year by the New York Times Book Review. It was chosen for the 2018 shortlist for the Bailey Gifford Prize for Nonfiction, and The Guardian named it the best science fiction book of 2018. He is, to his knowledge, the only writer after whom a species of tapeworm has been named. Hi, Carl. Hi, how are you? So let's start off with some light small talk and some softball questions before we get going to the heavy duty questions. You're a venerated podcaster and you hosted an extraordinary series that ran eight episodes called What is Life? So now that makes you the expert. Professor Zimmer, what is life? <laughs> uh, life is uh, something that people have a hard time agreeing on, that's for sure. I did this podcast where I brought on eight different experts, you know, philosophers and scientists, and we talked about life and we did it in front of a live audience and I recorded it as a podcast. Didn't really get to a resolution, which I wasn't really expecting to anyway, but it was a fascinating conversation. And so that has sort of dragged me into writing a book. It's called Life's Edge and will be coming out in the spring. And what's amazing is that there are more and more definitions of life out there that scientists put out and they keep adding on more definitions. There are hundreds of them now. And at that point, you really need to go and talk to the philosophers and they'll tell you that uh, maybe the whole idea of trying to define something like life misunderstands what definitions are for. So, you know, maybe we'll be thinking about, well, what does life do? Or, or what is a theory that explains life rather than trying to come up with some entry for a dictionary? So it sounds like there's an interdisciplinary conversation around this that you want it to really flesh out as well. What are some of the different dimensions and how, how and why is interdisciplinariness important to that definition? It's interesting that in order to be a good scientist, you need to really drill into some aspect of the world that you can uh, understand very well and that you can then go ahead and 
discover something that other people haven't discovered yet. But what that can mean is that people may set up their entire lab with all sorts of grad students working hard with them um, just to focus on you know one protein or one part of a protein. But that protein is, is part of art of life, whatever life is. And you can't just talk to one scientist about one protein to really kind of get a grasp on, on, on any real meaningful part of life. You have to like talk to different people and get their perspectives on it. And I think even just doing science writing, you, it, it's really good to try to be interdisciplinary. And then if you're going to sort of step back and, and think about science as an undertaking that people do, well, then it's not just the data, but it's science as a human endeavor, you know? So why are scientists studying one thing and another? What are the implications for society? How do the findings get used or misused? And so then you need to be talking to people other than scientists as well. For me, that that is a, a real privilege that lets me get into conversations with all sorts of interesting people and who can surprise me with all sorts of new ways about thinking about something. So I don't see it as a duty. I actually think of it as a, a very nice opportunity. It's really exciting to hear that there is a book forthcoming out of these conversations, which were so exciting to hear. And I wanted to ask you a question about form, podcaster to podcaster, about the genre of podcasting, especially as it relates to the science and tech related fields. You know, you write in this field across a number of different forms, the essay, the book, the article and the op-ed, and you give talks. And I'm curious about this transition in particular, in this case, from podcast series to book, but even broadly, what do you think the form of podcasting in particular allows you to do with your knowledge and expertise in these topics? And, and what's different about this form from the other forms of thinking that you put your thought into? Well, for starters, I would consider myself a pretty much a, an amateur or newbie podcaster. This was one opportunity I had to put out a podcast series, which really came about by organizing a series of talks at a place in New York called Caveat. And um, the great thing about Caveat is that it's all rigged up for doing podcast quality recording. So, you know, you show up there in front of a live audience and have a conversation and boom, you've got a podcast. So really, whatever credit you give to, to me as a podcaster, most of it goes to Ben Lilly, who is the owner of Caveat. So all that being said, I love podcasts and I love actually collaborating with people who do podcasts full time, people like Radiolab or Science Versus or, or, or these other places. They're just they're just masters of their genre and podcasts. I mean, you know, it's kind of like, it's just a software that you can use and you can do what you want with it. You know, it's not, it doesn't tell you what you have to write with it. You know, it's really on just whatever you, you want to do with it. And so podcasting, you know, you can have conversations and it's really interesting. It's fascinating to me that people are quite happy to just stick earphones in their ears and listen to a couple people talk for like an hour people listening to us now, like we really do like conversations. And, uh, you know, sometimes you can sort of get across the gist of pretty complicated ideas more effectively just by chatting, just by, you know, interrupting each other uh, just to clarify things or, to, the, or the conversation goes in interesting ways. But, you know, there are other podcasts that are more almost like, like dramas where, you know, someone like Jad Abumrad, you know, I was just talking with him a few weeks ago about COVID-19 and we were just chatting and got on the subject of 
this figure in the history of medicine who, who I'm fascinated by, Ignaz Semmelweis, who basically got doctors to wash and, and sanitize their hands uh, between you know, doing things like autopsies and treating patients. Uh, and he wasn't really familiar with that story. And so um, we just said, well, okay, let's, let's, let's do an episode about Semmelweis. And so he and I talked for a long time and then he had me do some readings of Semmelweis's actual writings. He uh, then went and talked to a bunch of scientists uh, and historians uh, and got all these different voices and then created music and did lots of sound effects and then just sort of whipped this together into this sort of soundscape almost of, about Semmelweis. And it was just marvelous to watch, you know. In those situations, I just kind of kick back and just say like, okay, what do you need from me? Uh, you know, I, I've done the research and I'm, I can talk all day about this. What do you need from me? And then these people with these other kinds of expertise can take the stuff and run with it in their own ways. Another question about kind of the form of conversation. You have a bachelor's degree in English. Could you say a bit about how you ended up writing in science? And does your training in, in literary thinking impact how you think and write about science? What, if anything, does your training as a humanist allow you to see or know or notice or articulate about scientific thought and topics that you write about? Well, I, I think when you, when you, when you do have that, uh, that training in the humanities, especially in, in literature, like you have a sense of stories and how people tell stories and the techniques they use to tell a story well. And so, you know, the, basically I go into science and I say, all right, what's the story here? What's the story I want to tell? So, you know, I'm not just sort of like throwing a spreadsheet at people. I'm not just trying to bury them in data. I, I want to tell them a story. And lo and behold, along the way, they might actually learn something about COVID-19 or evolution or whatever. And that's great. But the the story can carry them along much further than if it was just a, you know, a very painful assigned textbook chapter that they had to read. There's a really interesting history of that style and form of writing, and it's captured really well in The New Yorker, which of course introduces us to the new journalism, which uses the techniques of storytelling, particularly from fiction, enlisting things like characterization and setting and all of those things to, to, to tell a story about our reality in a way that journalism hadn't really done before that. Are there specific challenges to writing in science and technology and medicine and telling those kind of stories? If so, what kinds of challenges do these stories face in articulating them in that narrative way that you just explained? The thing is that, you know, in the world of science, there could be scientific research that makes for a great story, which is not really good science. Uh, and there can be incredible science that is carried out by people who are perfectly nice, but not really like amazing characters. You can't see them in a big movie, you know, they're just folks. And so that's a challenge. It's a challenge you have to work on because if you, if you, if you only look for what's obviously the big flashy story, you're going to end up writing about a lot of really poor science and you're going to be missing the real important stories of science the, the 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 findings that are going to save people's lives are going to change the way we understand the universe and so on 
So you just, it just requires you like digging deeper, working harder, you know, not going for the low hanging fruit. You know, there's always this temptation to like, to write a story about like the wild maverick who, who defied everyone and had this amazing idea that no one believed in. I, I think that's, that's the cheap and easy way out. And it's bad actually, because you can actually end up like glorifying people who are actually denying that HIV causes AIDS or something like that. If all you care about is how exciting of a, of a character a scientist presents themselves as. You know, just this week, we're recording the first week of June of 2020, your article titled, How You Should Read Coronavirus Studies or Any Science Paper, appeared in the New York Times. What makes these papers different from all other papers? And why do we need a specific set of skills to interpret them? Well, maybe this is my humanities background coming coming out again, but you know, you, when you're reading something, you need to think about it as as a piece of writing. And pieces of writing follow rules, um, and and these are not these these are not you know laws of physics. These are culturally agreed upon rules. You know, scientists agree on what makes a good paper, and that's not what they agreed on a hundred years ago. It has evolved. And so you need to kind of understand scientific papers as being the product of this social process. And you also need to recognize, to really appreciate a paper, you need to recognize it as being, you know, just part of the flow of science. In other words, you know, when a science paper comes out, that is not, you know, some sort of absolute revealed truth. And, and there's nothing that happens after that paper comes out. These days, you know, a paper might go online as a preprint first, and then people on Twitter might start yelling about it, and then maybe people like me report on it, and then it starts going through peer review, and the peer reviewers are raising good objections to it, or maybe kind of irrelevant objections, and there's that long fight that goes on, and then it comes out in a journal having been peer reviewed, which is a valuable thing, but that doesn't stop scientists from talking about it. And, you know, people will say like, well, you know, I, I'm amazed this even got through peer review. How could they have overlooked this problem with it? Or people might say like, well, actually, this is supported by some other research. And actually, like, it looks like we're getting to understand this better. And it might take five years to really judge whether that paper mattered or not. You know, we have a big issue with science right now with reproducibility. So, you know, a very flashy study comes out, you know, maybe it shows that, oh, you know, you can be subconsciously primed to, to behave like an old person based on a study of like 20 students and the p-value wasn't very good, but it was an exciting result and it got into a flashy journal and then a lot of people wrote about it. And then maybe somebody else says, well, let me try this with like 100 people and, and let me use a more rigorous study design. And then they, they replicate the study, but they can't get the same results anymore. So these a lot of results go away. That's part of the process too. So, you know, just sort of understanding scientific papers like that, I think can really help people to appreciate it now. Because we are in this situation where, like with COVID-19, for example, it's kind of, in, you know, we're talking at the beginning of June and there have been at this point, well over 10,000, maybe 15,000 papers, either in journals or preprints about COVID-19. And most of them you can read, you can read online for free. 
You don't need to be able to get hold of, you know, the Journal of Clinical Investigations, you know, on some shelf in a university library. You just go into Google Scholar and you, there you go. So I think that's great that there's that access. The way to get the most out of that experience is to, to appreciate how to read a scientific paper. I want to ask a question from the other side. You teach a course titled Writing About Science, Medicine, and the Environment at Yale. What skills do those who write about science, medicine, and the environment need to have? What are some of the principles that undergird the form and the craft from the other side of it? In other words, from the writer's side of it. You have to, first and foremost, have a really good feel for the fact that you're writing for people. And you have to ask, like, who are the people that you're writing for? I encourage my students to write for as many people as they can. And in other words, as wide of an audience as possible. You know, I don't think that three-year-olds are going to be reading articles about general relativity, but I do think that a motivated high school student will. But, you know, you just don't want to, like, bury them in jargon and and expect them to go off and look up every single word that you're throwing at them. So so a feel for your readers and try to think about, you know, how how do you tell your readers a story and how how are they going to understand that story? Because they don't live inside your head. The only the only access they have to what you know is what you put on the page. And so you can't you know, jump around in time without letting people know where you're going. You can't refer to, you know, really esoteric concepts without bothering to explain them. And, you know, I, I think ultimately that what has to happen to, to reach all those goals is you actually have to really zero in on just the bare minimum of what you want to talk about. You know, you, you, you don't want to be trying to fit an encyclopedia into a 2000 word story. You want to say like, well, what am I really trying to say here? What's my point? And let me just leave the rest of it out, which is difficult because people often, especially scientists, will think, well, more is always better. More information, more data is always better. And that's just patently untrue when it comes to communication and storytelling and the rest. Especially in the media environment that we're in right now, where, as you described, one of the major shifts from the 17th century to now is that we're now debating things online in the social media environment. Conversations are happening much faster than they've had before. And I wonder if you could talk a little bit about science journalism in a social media ecosystem in particular, where facts and evidence sometimes lose out in the war against propaganda and what George Saunders has called, I think very aptly, the brain-dead megaphone, as in a system where he who speaks the loudest in the loudest volume in the most partisan terms wins the internet and dominates the conversation. How can fact-based reportage, which frequently relies on more nuance than 140-word epigrams can bear, um, maintain its voice in that ecosystem? And what's that balance between providing enough facts on the one hand to substantiate a claim and on the other hand, making yourself intelligible in that ecosystem? Well, that, that's, that, that, is, <laughs> that is a, a challenge that I'm trying to sort out every day on, on social media and elsewhere. You know, it's, it's very frustrating. I suppose the most extreme example I've gone through recently is that I wrote an article about COVID-19 and I was writing an article uh, about how scientists are sequencing the genetic material in the virus in order to figure out its history. It originated in China from bats and then was spreading around within China. And then after that, 
spread to other countries. And you can actually get a rough idea of when those spreads happen by looking at the mutations in the virus. And so, you know, one of the news hooks of this story was that scientists in New York were looking at the genetic material of viruses in New York. And you can actually say like, okay, where did this virus come from? You know, the, whoever brought the, introduced this virus into the city, where did they come from? You can actually like get a pretty good idea of that. And the vast majority of the, the viruses in circulation in New York were coming from Europe. Mm. That doesn't mean the virus originated in Europe, but that means that people got on planes in Europe and came to New York. And that's very important because it was happening in February and it was happening after the president had banned flights from China, but no one was doing anything about people coming in from Europe. And it sort of speaks to one of the many, many failures that the United States has had in, in preparing and fighting this virus. It's one of the reasons why we, we have had tens of thousands of people die who did not have to die. So this is serious stuff. And then the president of the United States gets on Twitter and attacks my article. And, and says like, oh, well, this, this stupid New York Times doesn't understand, is pretending that the virus isn't the China virus. I'm totally paraphrasing there. But that was in effect what it was. And so I thought, okay, well, this is interesting. What do I do now? Mm-hmm. And so I just sort of, you know, with the help of my wife, who's very, very good at thinking clearly about these things and, and a very good editor, I came up with uh, six or seven tweets in a thread, you know, d- directly addressing him, but, you know, in effect, direct addressing a broad audience and just saying, okay, you, it's really important that you as a president understand what's happening with this, with this virus. What you have said is not true. Here is the situation, as I said in the article. And, you know, I'm pointing people to the article itself. And the fact is a lot of people ended up reading the article. Like, hundreds of thousands or millions of people ended up reading that article. I forget the, 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 the analytics on it, but like it was a lot of people read that and you're never going to be able to fit in huge amounts of nuance into something like Twitter or Facebook, but people actually are willing to read things. At least when people are saying like, okay, I need to really understand what's happening. They will look beyond Twitter or Facebook and look for reliable sources. So I, I think that, you know, we should not just say like, oh, the world is entirely social media now. It's not. And, and I think it's more complex than that. I'm going to pull out of a thread of something you said at the beginning of your comment, which is that we had warnings about this virus much earlier than our administrative leadership would like us to believe. And one of those warnings, I think, comes out of a book that you published in 2011 called A Planet of Viruses that compiled a collection of your essays for the World of Viruses Project. It's especially relevant right now for obvious reasons. There's a chapter there titled Predicting the Next Plague, which concentrates on SARS, Severe Acute Respiratory Syndrome, and Ebola, both of which belong to the genre of viruses with a name that we're now very familiar with, which is coronavirus. You write in that chapter that, and I'm quoting from you, someday, somewhere, a virus we don't know about is going to emerge as a major new threat to human health. We've seen it happen many times before, and so we know it will happen again. And you noted in that essay that we don't know the world of viruses very well, and that we need to urgently figure out how to block their ability to jump from animal hosts to human hosts. So don't say that we weren't warned, right? What, if anything, has surprised you about this epidemic? 
I have been surprised at how predictable it's been. <laughs> you know, that passage you mentioned that I wrote, I was hardly the first person or the only person to be saying something like that. I, I take no credit for that. I think I was writing down the painfully obvious. And even, you know, in the world of journalists, you know, someone like Laurie Garrett in the early 90s was saying much the same thing long before I did that. So we, we had lots and lots and lots and lots of warning that this was going to happen. And and yet it has played out in a way, like if you watch the movie Contagion, like there's just a lot that that movie got right as well, and down to all sorts of details, including the Jude Law character who's, who's hawking a, a snake oil cure for, for, their, for that virus. So it's frustrating that it, it really has gone as you could have predicted, and yet certain countries, the United States among them, was terribly, terribly unprepared for it, denied that uh, it was a threat at all, had no testing in place. We're at the point now where like, people think that contact tracing is some sort of conspiracy to control us. When contact tracing is something that's been used to keep the public healthy for, for over a century, I mean, it's, it's really infuriating, honestly, that, that this is all so predictable and, and could have been handled so much better. You're pointing to something very important here, which is, I think, obvious to us, but I want you to talk about this if you, if you might. You're talking about the reality that science, that our health is vitally tied to the political system and its functioning in the moment. And one thing that's become abundantly clear at this moment is that science and medicine and health and the direction of our inquiries and our biological realities are intimately tied to the health of our democracy, and to our journalistic ecology, which is something that you talk about in a speech you gave in 2017. How do you understand these links and interdependencies? In, in, in the modern world, governments need science to make decisions about most of the most important things that are out there. If, if you want to keep your population healthy, you need to understand medicine clearly. If you want to make use of technology to help people thrive in all sorts of ways. Well, that technology doesn't come from just anywhere. It comes from basic research. And, uh, but the, the problem is that, you know, governments may not like what the scientists have to say, and, or they may prefer to hear something else that maybe some, you know, uh, someone pretending to be a scientist is happy to tell them. We're dealing with that problem right now in the United States, but it's hardly something unique to a, a Western capitalist country like the United States. If you just look at uh, the Soviet Union with Trofim Lysenko and, and Stalin, you have an example there where genetics was seen as, as this capitalist nonsense that you could just, just ignore genes, um, which was absurd and, and really set back Soviet science by decades. It was, it, was, it was a terrible tragedy and actually like really hampered their food supply. They, you know, Lysenko promised that they would be able to you know, just grow huge amounts of food based on his fairly crackpot ideas about biology. And so there's real suffering and we can see that in history and we're, we're seeing it now. And, you know, when and if we get this, get past this pandemic, this is still going to be an important issue. You know, it, the climate is not getting any cooler while we're distracted by this pandemic, but you have 
lots of politicians who want to pretend that if it snows one day that there's no global warming. And so it's so science uh, and democracy are really intertwined. And you know, journalism, you know, we journalists have a role to play, which is to which is to explain to the public you know, what science is telling us and why it matters, and also to hold governments to account when they are looking away from what the science is telling us. Unfortunately, journalism is, you know, really on the ropes these days, and so that becomes a real challenge. The other dimension that you just talked about and you've been kind of mentioning over and over again in your answers is the dimension of, of the people, of course, the audience. And part of the dimension of the people in the audience is, is culture and cultural backgrounds. And I wanted to ask you about something else you say in, in that same speech that I just cited. You note that, and I'm quoting you again, people may not draw the conclusions from your work that you think are obvious. And that one reason for that has to do with how we filter information through our identities, our experiences, and our cultural affiliations. I wonder if you could say a little bit more about this. How do these factors impact the interpretation of information, even seemingly objective facts? And if you could provide and talk about a case where this matters, where, where there's stakes involved. There's been a lot of research on this whole question, which is really fascinating to look at. So Dan Kahan, for example, at Yale Law School has done a lot of research looking at how, how people sort of culturally self-identify themselves and how that affects their understanding and view of scientific information. There is a big effect, but it's, it's, it re he really challenges some of the sort of complacent assumptions that scientists may have or that, or that other people may have. So a lot of people might say like, okay, climate change. Um, well, anybody who denies climate change just doesn't understand science. Because if you just looked at the science, you would see, you would see that climate change is real and that it's a threat to our, to our well-being. So what Dan Kahan did was he came up with a way of basically getting an idea of, of how well people understood science overall, sort of a general science intelligence, you could think of it. And then he would ask people what they're, you know, to answer questions about human evolution or lasers or climate change, whatever. And then he would see how many people got answers right and wrong. And, you know, there were a lot of questions where the more science you knew overall, the more likely you're to get the right answer. And these were kind of like relatively uncontroversial things like, you know, what's bigger, an electron or an atom. But if there were, if there were questions that touched on sort of how people identify themselves, you know, with religion, for example, um, evolution really can be seen as a threat. Or with climate change, if you are a, a politically conservative and really believe in the free market, um, you, you may look at you know, you know, our industry is built on carbon. So this is, you may see that as a threat to sort of how you lived your life and, and what, how you think things should be. Someone who is politically conservative, the more science they know, the higher their sort of science, general scientific intelligence, the more likely they are to reject human climate change. So they actually understand the science better than somebody else who might accept that climate change is real but is not being motivated by those cultural factors. It's a, it's, a, it's, a, it's a very tough challenge, and it's very hard to find ways to sort of unwind these things once they start. 
you know, with vaccines, for example, there's a lot of cultural self-identification that will make people just reject any information about vaccines. And that really wasn't the case in the 1990s. It, it, it emerged, it, it, it gained strength, and it's hard to put the genie back in the bottle. So one thing that Dan Kahan and other people have looked into is sort of this idea of sort of vaccinating people in terms of information. You know, just to try to look ahead and see what kind of disinformation is going to be coming out and find ways to sort of like get people familiar with what science really tells us so that, you know, if someone shows up starting to talk about vaccines, then their audience actually already has something to compare that to. If you haven't really paid attention to vaccines and, you, and then suddenly someone is telling you about them, you might say, oh my gosh, I didn't know anything about vaccines. And now you're going to believe everything that they say. It's interesting that you use that metaphor of vaccination for the technique to deliver information. There's a lot of fact-resistant people out there. So vaccination is actually a, a great and interesting complex metaphor to use for that. I wanted to shift gears here and I wanted to ask you about some of your work in genetics and questions of hereditary nature. And I wanted to ask this through the lens of science fiction, which is one way that people become or understand fluency in that area in our time. And for science fiction readers, one thing you notice is that a lot of science fiction tends to play out the scientific aspirations and ideals and innovations of the moment in which it's written. And there's a lot of unintended consequences the dystopias that come along with it, and worst case scenarios. There's a period in the 90s where that particular scientific innovation and engineering on the genetic level led to ghastly dystopias, such as the one imagined in Gattaca, where society trades regularly in genetic discrimination, in Greg Bear's Blood Music, where self-aware genetically engineered cells start to take over their hosts' bodies, and of course in Steven Spielberg's famous Jurassic Park, which is based on the Michael Crichton novel in which businesses and science collaborate to engineer living dinosaurs from preserved DNA. What do these fictions get right about genetic engineering? What do they get right about the nature of DNA and the possibilities of our meddling with it? And what do they get wrong? I am not a big fan of sort of genetic dystopian science fiction stuff. I waste way too much of my time explaining to people why Jurassic Park is not reality. <laughs> I understand that the people who make these movies or write these books are, want to explore some important issues, but they do so by turning the science into a fairy tale. And, and then people think that that fiction is actually an accurate representation of the science and what the science can do. So then all of a sudden we're, we're, we're getting into arguments about the threat of this science in the future based on a Hollywood script. So I just, I, I don't, I honestly, I don't find them helpful at all. And there's a lot of work to be done to really make good works of, of art, of fiction, of film that deal with genetics in a way that actually like understands genetics. You know, and I mean, I you know, maybe it's just because like, if I look at reality, if I look at nonfiction, there are amazing, heartbreaking, enraging stories, whether it's in, in Nazi Germany or in, in the early 1900s in the United States, where eugenics led to the sterilization of tens of thousands of people. I don't understand why we have to be like talking about whether you can clone dinosaurs or not to talk about, you know, the risks of these kinds of science. Uh, you know, it's right there. 
let's talk about those real things. Why do you think that they fascinate such a large segment of our population as they do? I wrote a book about heredity called She Has Her Mother's Laugh, and it's, it's not just a sort of a history of the science of heredity, but, but kind of an exploration of why heredity is so important to us. Um, why is it that we really define ourselves through heredity? And, and I think that um, it, 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 we have sort of come to look at our genes as being this all-encompassing definition of who we are. Uh, and then if anyone could ever dare alter a gene, then they are tampering with some sort of like divinely ordered destiny, which is a conflation of, you know, our very new understanding of genetics with some very old ideas about heredity. There's, there's a long tradition of very sort of essentialist thinking about, you know, well, what is your, what is your blood? What do you inherit through the blood? And a lot of the racism that we are still grappling with now comes from that kind of a old thinking about heredity. So, you know, ha having any sort of conversation about, about genetics immediately makes people jump to these uh, almost kind of mythical stories and, and views of, of what genes are and what genes mean for us, I think. It's interesting to hear you describe uh, one of the things that you think compels us and compels our interest in DNA as something that we feel is vital to our definition of who we are. Another dimension of that that you write about, and I'm starting to see a, a thread here, is the brain, which is another way that we think about the vitality and the centrality of who we are. And last week on the podcast, I got to hear about how the brain works from a technologist working in artificial intelligence, which seeks to build models of the mind and its ability to to learn based on the brain. And the week before, I spoke to a bioethicist about the concept of brain death and the relationship between brain death and the centrality of identity. And I wonder if you could talk a little bit from your perspective about how you approach this massive multi-dimensional and multidisciplinary topic of identity and the brain, especially for your book. Where did your research into the brain start? I got particularly interested in the in the brain, I'm working on my fourth book called Soul Made Flesh. I just thought it would be interesting to write a book about the brain, but there's so many books out there on the brain that it was a little daunting to find a kind of a free space to explore. So I started looking into the sort of the history of neuroscience and neurology, and I was just fascinated that before the 1600s, people didn't really think much about the brain. I mean, they would sometimes describe it as just a sort of like a, a ball of phlegm or, 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 or suet. They, they didn't really see it the way we see it as, as kind of, you know, the, the, the place where our emotions and memories and experiences and decisions and everything happens. And it was just very interesting to me that, you know, in, in a pretty short period of time, you know, in the 1650s, in the 1660s, that all changed. And there were, there were just a relatively few number of people who kind of brought that change about. So it's, it's, it's interesting how when we're not talking about genes as being like the def defining who we are, then we like to think our, of our brains as being that place that defines us. You know, when in fact, we still really don't understand very well how the brain works at all. 
and our brains are remarkably malleable in the in the sense that they are being the way they function is is be constantly being changed by the environment itself but there's still you know the the always the urge to kind of re- reduce things to a simple story and i suppose you know between heredity and the brain these days I noticed that there's sort of a resurgence in wanting to basically reduce everything to IQ and and to say like, oh, well, there's just, you know, this number explains everything. And it's just a, it just reflects the biology of of the brain. And, you know, and which in turn is determined by genes. I'm very interested in writing about genes as people find how they influence the brain and influence behavior and even intelligence. There are definitely genes that, you know, are statistically linked to how people do on intelligence tests, but that's just the beginning of the story. And it'd be a big mistake to look at, you know, say 50 genes and say, aha, like if you've got the the right 50 genes, then you're going to score really high on an intelligence test and everything's great for you. Those 50 genes might explain, you know, a few percent of the variation. That doesn't mean they, they're not real they, and they're interesting, but there's so many things that go into this complicated thing that we call intelligence that are conveniently being ignored these days. The quantification in many ways is a lot simpler than having to factor in things like the conditioning or the fact that the cognitive challenge of our environment plays into something like IQ as well. And you see in these conversations um, almost consistently this tension or this oscillation between seeing the brain on the one hand as a piece of technology, as a piece of biological or neurological hardware, and on the other hand, thinking about the brain in terms of the mind, right? That space that produces what we would think of as the elements of our identity, consciousness, complex ideas, the self. How, how do you understand after your research that relationship between those two ways of thinking about the brain? How does this understanding of the brain impact your understanding of what human life is? Not to make the question any bigger than it already was. Well, it's interesting. I mean, I have been thinking about that in particular because, you know, I think one of the problems we have with trying to figure out what life is, is that we're using the word for a lot of different things at once. If we talk about life as being like, well, what is what is this phenomenon of being alive? Well, of course, we're just sort of kicking the can down the road because now we have this word alive to to define. But in any case, like, if you think about life that way, then you need to like talk about well, what is it that makes the, you know, the bacteria that are growing on your teeth alive, as well as you being alive and whales and redwoods and everything else being alive. And whatever you share in common is life. But, you know, when people say like, oh, well, I believe in life or I choose life or I cherish life, they're talking about human life. And they're not just talking about human life, period. They're talking about the experience of life that we have as human beings with brains, which is a very different thing. And I think that's very problematic because then people will try to extend that back to the point at which humans do not have brains, but are in fact an embryo made up of two or three cells and where there's no, there's no life as a human life experience through a brain at all. And so, you know, I think a lot of our, a lot of claims about that the personhood movement makes trying to deprive women of their access to abortions hinge on that misunderstanding. To go back to what is on your brain or maybe your mind right now, which is of course viruses. One final question about the state of our time and our space. 
in this moment. What are some of the specific challenges in writing about COVID-19? You spoke about that broadly in terms of the challenges of writing about science, but I want to ask this question very pointedly in, about this particular dimension in this particular moment. And particularly in the middle of a pandemic, what role can science writing play in this moment, both in describing and providing a narrative for the state of affairs to the public, and also perhaps in changing the direction that that narrative will take? Well, I don't think it's the job of journalists to seize control of, of the narratives of society and point it in some particular direction. I do think that we, need, we do have a duty to, to explain the science in a way that as many people as possible can understand and to honestly report on, on how our understanding of, of, of that science is changing and the impact that's having on, on human well-being. So that can potentially lead to change. You know, if, if a government gets embarrassed by reporting that reveals that they're doing a terrible job with testing, hopefully they will be embarrassed into do, doing more tests. And you may not realize how important testing is until you read an article that explains that the only way to safely reopen is to have massive, massive testing. Unfortunately, you know, we don't have anywhere near the testing we need to reopen, but we're reopening anyway. So I fear it's going to be a pretty gruesome story by the fall. But when you're writing about something like COVID-19, being able to offer sort of the the basics is is a really valuable thing, I think, because, you know, we all like to pretend that we know this stuff really well, but, you know, maybe we don't. And, you know, maybe, maybe you know, a, a lot of people could really use a refresher on, well, what is a virus exactly? Why, why is it that washing your hands actually helps a lot? These are sometimes like the most fundamental basic questions are the questions that people are most afraid to ask because they're going to look stupid. And I don't think that people should be afraid to ask these questions at all because these can be the matter of life and death. And, and I think we need to start there with those sorts of things. One of the most satisfying experiences I had, you know, with sort of COVID journalism was speaking of podcasting again, my colleague, Michael Barbaro, who does the, the daily for the New York Times, he and his producers decided that they were going to have me answer questions from kids about coronavirus. And I was like, wow, like not only am I like getting questions from kids, I have to answer these in a way that kids can understand. And that was hard, but it was worth it. And, you know, not only the feedback I got was not only did, did, the, did kids appreciate it, but I think a lot of their parents were listening in and saying like, oh, I, I, I've always wondered this too. And now I think I get it. I'm just very curious now, what are some of the questions that you kept getting from kids? What are kids asking? How does it make us sick? Good question. When will there be a vaccine? Some of the best questions are questions that a, you know, a kid can come up with and, and, and say in five words. Those are really good questions. And often, you know, adults are asking those questions as well. They're big, complicated stories as part of this pandemic, but I think science writers can do a lot of good by clearly explaining a lot of the basic stuff too. Thank you, Carl. Sure thing. Thanks for having me.